Good morning. We are in the book of James. And for the kiddos who haven't been with us, James is actually the brother of Jesus. They had the same mom. Obviously, they had a different dad. That's a different sermon. Um, And so James and Jesus were brothers. And James wrote a letter to the people in the early church. And he wrote the letter in Greek. Did you guys know that? He didn't write in English. He actually wrote in Greek. In fact, this is a, a piece of papyrus that's about three, from three or 400 B.C. that has Greek writing on it. This is what people wrote on back then. And men and women today study these old languages and translate them into English so we can read them. So we've been studying this letter here in Big People Church for the past few weeks, and we're studying another chapter of it. Now, this letter was written about 15 years After the death of Jesus on the cross. So we're talking the late 40s, early 50s AD. So 15 years later, James is writing about his big brother and his teaching. So that's what's going on. Just for some perspective, another sort of tragic event that took place in human history about 15 years ago was 9-11. So we're about that far removed when James is writing about the events of Jesus' life, just to give you a little context on how far back is he writing about. And what's interesting about James is, I don't know if you guys know this, but James didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was during Jesus' lifetime. In fact, there's a a piece uh, in the early church um, What's interesting is he became a leader of the early church, so now he's writing a letter. So you might say, what happened to this thing? And this is a letter that he wrote that was being read to the early church. And so James's family, actually in Mark 3, I think we'll look at it a little bit later. I thought the slide was right after that, where it actually shows a part where Jesus was in teaching and there was a big crowd that was coming and talking uh, and, and hearing him talk and he was doing miracles. And his family heard about this and they actually said, let's go get him. He's crazy. We don't know what's going on here. So Jesus' family, his brothers, didn't actually believe his teaching until after the resurrection, until after they saw him, until after Pentecost, until he's other times. And what's interesting is, is now James is a leader of the Jerusalem council. So he's a leader of the church and he wrote this letter. And what he, what these guys would do is they would write these letters, they would make copies of them and they would send them around to all the churches to be read. And so this letter, this is a, you know, an illustration of what it might look like in the early church. People would be inside of a home and they would stand up and read these letters. And what's interesting is this is why moms and dads still get together in homes and we sit around and read the Bible. And a lot of things that we read in the Bible today are actually letters. So we're, we're still doing this just like we've done for thousands of years. So this is the letter that we've been looking at. And this letter that we've been talking about is talking about how can we be wholehearted for Jesus? And what's interesting is James knows a little bit about not being wholehearted for Jesus because there was a time in his life when he wasn't. And here's that verse that I was mentioning. When his family, so this would have been James when he was a boy, hearing about Jesus, teaching and healing, heard what was happening. They tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. So James actually understands what it is to not be wholehearted for Jesus. He knows what it's like to not believe in Jesus, and now he's had the conversion to believe, and he's one of the leaders of the early church. 
So there are two primary lessons that have been going on through this entire letter. The first one is faith and works. Not just belief, but also the doing. We should believe in Jesus and do what he told us to do. We should believe in Jesus, that's the faith side, and we should do what he told us to do. That's the work side. So that's lesson number one he's been teaching. Lesson number two is about being wholehearted. Now, wholehearted means we should only have one heart towards Jesus. Wholehearted doesn't mean this kind of whole. So if you're hearing the word whole and you're thinking having a hole in your heart, that's not this kind of whole. Wholehearted is this kind of whole. Is that a whole, is that a whole pizza? Kids, anybody here, is that a whole pizza? No, that's not a whole pizza. That's a piece of pizza, right? That's a whole pizza. So what Jesus doesn't want is he doesn't want a piece of your heart. He doesn't want one slice of your heart. He doesn't want the Sunday slice. So this morning, you're at church. He doesn't want the Sunday you. He wants the Monday through Sunday you. He wants all seven slices of your week. He wants every part or piece of your heart. That's what he's teaching us here. And so James is telling us, and again, we're going to see in this lesson today, in this passage we're going to look at today, a lot about how do we be wholehearted. Because the truth is, is our hearts can be very divided. And we're going to see two ways that our hearts can be divided. In fact, our hearts can be divided, my heart can be divided from yours. You could believe and think and want to do one thing, and I could believe and think and want to do another. Our hearts are also divided inside of ourselves. We want to do things that we know we shouldn't do. We do things we wish we wouldn't do. Sometimes we want to do the right thing and we can't do it. Our hearts are very divided. So let's look at these verses. James chapter 4 verses 1 through 12. So get out your Bible, whatever form you're reading it in. I'm going to read it to you guys in the New Living Translation because I like the way this translation just reads. I'm going to read the whole passage first, and then we're going to go back through, and we're going to look at it in four sections, because I think there's four lessons in these four sections of these verses for us this morning. So section one, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scriptures say without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify you hearts, you double-minded. Grieve Mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it. 
but you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? We pray for us. Lord, we thank you for these letters that have been preserved. And I thank you for the men and women who transcribed them in languages, who studied the languages, who translate them into all the languages of the world for us. And I thank you that we have this book of books, this Bible. And I thank you for James, your brother. I thank you for his salvation. I thank you for this letter he wrote. And I thank you for these words. And as we look at a section of this letter this morning, I pray that our hearts would be open. I pray that we wouldn't be defensive to you, Holy Spirit, this morning, but we would be open to you and what you want to say to us. Shine light in the deepest, darkest parts of our heart, reveal things to us so that we can be truly free from them and that we can serve you better. Jesus' name. All right, what causes fights and quarrels among you? This among you could mean multiple different things. These pictures are for the kiddos this morning and for the adults. You guys are enjoying them too. Um, What causes fights and quarrels among you, right? So we know people throughout human history have been fighting What most scholars believe James is talking about is not the general among you, but among you, body of believers. He's he's flabbergasted that he's hearing these stories that people are fighting. Well, how are they fighting? And where does this come from? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Again, the battle here, man to man, woman to woman, mother to, to daughter, father to son, these kind of battles in between people, but also these battles that rage inside of us, this desire for things. This word desire is the Greek word hedone. It's where you might notice we get the word hedonism. We'll talk about that in a little bit. You desire, but you don't have. So you want something, but you don't have it, so you kill. Now, scholars are divided on this. They don't know, does he actually mean people are, are desiring things and they desire them so much that they actually cause harm to somebody else? Or is this actually like Jesus His big brother said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you heard a Sermon on the Mount, probably Jesus' most famous sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The letter of James mirrors the Sermon on the Mount in many ways. In fact, there are things that they both talk about together and sort of uh, you can cross-reference them. This could be one of them. Here's where Jesus says, you've heard that the ancients or the the people of old were told, told in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother, so murder is something out here, anger is something in here, right? It's not just the man to man, it's the inside of a man and a woman and a child. Anyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. There are things that go on in our hearts. And what did Jesus say? He said, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of him. And he's saying your words are betraying an anger that is equivalent to murder inside of you. You desire and you don't have, so you kill. Where does this come from? Doesn't it come from these evil desires inside of you? You covet but you can't get what you want. Covet is a word that means I want what somebody else has, right? 
Here's a brother and sister fighting over a rabbit. This doesn't stop. Mommies and daddies covet as well. Don't just think this is siblings fighting over there's only one toy instead of two. Mommies and daddies might want the job somebody else got. Mommies and daddies might want the house somebody else had. Mommies and daddies might think they got passed over for a promotion or don't make enough money or frustrated about things. Those things happen inside of our hearts. You do not have, the verse says, because you don't ask God. Now, how do we ask God? Well, luckily, we have a Jesus prayer. Jesus actually teaches us this. Where does he teach it? He teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. We call it the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us how we ask God for things. Here's what he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy, great, majestic, glorious is your name. Your kingdom come... Right? So he is a king in heaven. And he's saying, pray that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The king's will is always done in his kingdom. Here on earth, the king's will isn't always done. And Jesus is saying, we should pray, we should ask God. If we see something we want, we should ask God, Lord, if it is your will, let that be here in my life. If it's your will in heaven, then let it be. Here's the things he tells us to ask for. Ask for daily bread. Ask that we're forgiven our debts. He reminds us that we should forgive those who have wronged us. Also, don't lead us into temptation and deliver us from evil. This is what we should be asking for. But we're not asking this way. In fact, these, the group of people he was talking to, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, again, this isn't an anti-shopping thing, even though that's quite an excessive shopping trip right there. But the point of it is... You're asking for things that you can spend on yourselves as, instead of aligning the desires of your heart with the will of your Father in heaven and understanding that he blesses you in order that you can be a blessing. He didn't do everything he did in life. He doesn't do everything he does in your life just for you alone. He gives you the whole pizza so you can have a slice and you can share some with others to keep the pizza metaphor going. So let's talk about these pleasures that you want to spend them on. Paul talks to Titus in here, saying, At one time we were too foolish, disobedient, and deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. There's that word again. Covetousness is envy towards a thing. Right When we're coveting a thing, it's envy inside of our hearts. What he's basically saying here is, we have all these pleasures and we have all these desires for pleasure inside of us. And we think they're going to be fulfilling for us, but they're actually enslaving us. It's actually a prison. And it's a prison we were not meant to live in. In fact, there was an entire belief system at that time that came about in the Greeks, so around the time of James, called hedonism. And it was the ethical theory or a theory of how you should live that pleasure in the sense of satisfaction of your desires is the highest good and proper aim of human life. So this was a rise where they said, basically, my good and my seeking of pleasure is the point of life. Now, we don't believe anything like that at all now, do we? Right? So like whenever I went looking for any quotes like this, Pinterest wasn't littered with lots of things you could buy and hang around your house that talk about doing more of what makes you happy. 
Or it was really hard to find quotes like this. I really had to dig on the internet to find quotes like, Life is better when you do what makes you happy, regardless of what others think. It's your life, not theirs. This is that exact philosophy. And we might not talk about pleasure or desire or hedonism, but we sure talk a lot about happiness. In fact, if you went and polled people in the world today, what you would find is that most people, what they want in life is to be happy. And most people, what they want for their children is to be happy. And most of our lives is oriented around seeking our own happiness. But we've been called to something different and better. In fact, we've been called to live not seeking pleasure, which is actually slavery and bondage. We've actually been called to freedom. And the freedom is that we don't use our freedom to satisfy our sinful nature. Instead, we use our freedom to serve one another in love. This is why we've been set free from these desires, because if you're always craving and seeking after these desires and seeking for yourself, not only are you not going to be satisfied, but you're going to have nothing left to give anyone else. Now, here's the problem with this, even for us believers. And Paul lays this out, and I know you guys have seen this a lot, but I want to point it out again. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. So Paul understands that there's something inside him that still wants things from his old life. I want to do but what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's that sinful nature inside of me. The one that Christ tells us, take up your cross every single day. Jesus didn't say, follow me to the cross one time and all will be solved. He said, take up your cross every day. And the thing that he wants you to nail on that cross isn't the actions only. He wants you to repent of those. He wants you to actually hang that nature, that nature that is inside of you. He wants you to put it to death. You may have heard in youth group, there's a white dog and a black dog, and whichever dog you feed more, that's the one that's going to be bigger. You're supposed to kill the black dog. It's not about feeding the black dog or feeding the white dog. You're supposed to kill the black dog. The black dog inside of you, is the one, it needs to die. You can't correct it. You can't will it away. You can't wish it would go away. You can't ignore it. You can't self-help it. You can't out-discipline it. It needs to die, that nature in you. Every day. Lesson number one, we don't desire right things. In fact, the sin nature inside of us that we have to kill every day doesn't desire right things. And not desiring right things causes us to make wrong choices. Moving on in the verses. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Now, friendship with the world doesn't mean you tree huggers, you environmentalists, right? They're not talking about that, not talking about stewardship of creation. That's not what friendship with the world is. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This is Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden, right? Choosing this friendship with the world. So the question is, what does friend of the world mean? I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily want to be an enemy of God. And this verse is telling me if I am a friend of the world... 
then I am an enemy of God. So I'm looking and going, wait, friend of the world, does that mean I like the earth and I want to take care of it and I recycle? Is that making me an enemy of God? Surely not. Wait, I want to be nice to all people. I thought I was supposed to love everybody. Like if I have a neighbor and he doesn't believe what I believe and doesn't do what I do and he makes bad choices and I love him and I think of him as my friend, is that being a friend to the world? No, it's not what it's saying. In fact, 1 John, we see very clearly, do not love the world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only. If you find these things inside of you, this is what the world has given. And if you love these things and follow after these things, what he's teaching you is you are making yourself a friend of the world. It is a friend of the ethos of the world, of the belief system, of the prevailing sort of way of living inside of your culture that is opposite of the way Jesus is teaching us. For the world offers only four things. A craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Craving for physical pleasures, cravings for everything we see, pride in our achievements, and pride in our possessions. Wow, that like sounds like our culture, like pretty much to a T, right? We've talked about a bunch of words here. Let me, get, let me give you some, some synonyms for this word crave and covet. Crave stresses the physical appetite or emotional need, and it's the force of it. The, the degree to which you long for this thing. Covet implies strong, envious desire. We talked about that. You have something and I want it. Wishing. Sometimes we wish for things and we find ourselves wishing for things that are transient or it's a longing for something that's unattainable, right? We see something and we're like, I can never have that and so it's unattainable. Want specifically suggests a felt need or a lack. Sometimes we feel a sense of want in our lives, right? And desire stresses the strength of feeling and often implies strong or intentional aim. I think of those, want, understanding your wants, understanding the lacks in your life, I think is important to do because we do have lacks and needs in our life. And I think desire is a good thing. I think there is a desire that is rightly appointed. God made us with the ability to want and desire. And I think the question isn't the feeling of it. I would, uh, I would say these first three are probably things we want to set aside. And the last one is something we want to have in our life. In fact, we see again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus even talking about these cravings. So don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. Dominate can also be translated in, as the word crave. So the way that you should read this, the concerns about what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear, our possessions. The concerns about our possessions, this is what the unbelievers crave. It's what they run after. But your father knows you need these things. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world... I chose you out of the world because of this. The world hates you. This is our antidote to this, right? This craving, this Jesus calling us to something else. 
He moves on and says, do you think the scripture says without reason? He jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Now you won't find in the scripture a verse that actually says literally this. He jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Commentators believe what James is referring to is again the Old Testament and specifically to the Ten Commandments where Jesus or where uh, the Father when he's uh, giving these Ten Commandments says don't make a graven image for I am a jealous God. Do not worship other gods. I am a jealous God. He's saying that in the Old Testament. What he means in the New Testament from a James standpoint and when he talks about this spirit that he caused to live within us, you have to understand in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit was in heaven. The Holy Spirit would come on specific men. It talked about him coming on prophets. He came on Samson when he did strong things. He would come on David. He would come on certain kings and prophets when they gave words. But the Holy Spirit didn't take up residence inside of human beings until after Pentecost. In Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and actually makes you his dwelling. Where the dwelling in the Old Testament was a physical building where the Spirit of God lived, you are now this dwelling. And if you think about the fact that for all of eternity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been one in relationship with one another. That this is what Jesus was crying and sweating tears of blood over in Gethsemane. It wasn't the being crucified. Many people have been crucified and martyred and didn't sweat blood over it. It was the separation of this relationship, of this intimacy that he had always enjoyed. And the fundamental nature of God is love and relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now what the Father and the Son have done is sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And James is talking to believers and saying, there is a Spirit of God that actually is taking up residence inside of you. And the Father and the Son have a passionate longing for relationship with the Spirit of God that has actually come and fused itself into your spirit and brought you alive and made you something new that never existed before in the world. And the idea that God would go through all of this trouble to ignite your spirit and bring you alive and make you a new creation and that you would dabble with some other thing, that you would crave something other than him, that you think the longings, the deep longings, the wants that you are acutely aware of, the pain that you know so well, that you numb with so many other things, the idea that we would run elsewhere, that we would think our own achievements or possessions, that we would think these other things that we desire are going to fulfill that. He is jealous He is jealous for you and for relationship with you and with himself. David understood desire. And we find these verses all throughout the Psalms. Here's three. As deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord with my whole being, body, and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord, that I could feed my soul with the beauty of his and inquire 
in his temple. David understood in the Old Testament the thing that Jesus was teaching us in the New Testament right after these verses where he talks about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, where you're going to work, how high you're going to go in that organization, how much money they're going to pay you, and whether or not you can vacation in that place you dream about. Don't worry about it. He knows you need and want that. What he wants is for your desire and your longing to be for him. He wants you to seek first his kingdom, and then all these things get added. So that dream that's in our heart, that wish, that thing that we hope, right, that the Disney Channel tells us all the time, that dream in your heart, if you only believe, right, if you just wish upon a star, right, we saw wish, Wish in a great word. If you just wish upon a star, if you just dream this thing, if you just sing your wish song at the beginning of the musical in 89 minutes through a little bit of cartoon fantasy violence, a little bit of magic, damsels in distress, that sort of thing, all of your dreams can come true. What he's saying is you don't have to wish on a star. What we're seeking is a God who came and lived and walked among us and became us. Went to heaven and sent a piece of himself to live inside of you so you could be in that relationship. But he gives more grace. Right? So he goes through this whole thing and says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Like, are you going to be my enemy? Are you going to be unfaithful? This thing that I put, this relationship, this covenant, this desire that we have, are you going to be unfaithful with it? Actually, I know you are, so I'm going to give you more grace. Not only am I going to give you my son, the thing that you don't deserve, I'm going to give you my spirit to empower you inside to live out this life, to transform you as though with fire. To burn up those desires, that is the sanctification process Walking with him, staying in that relationship, understanding that trial that you're going through right now is burning up mess in your life. If you stay engaged, if you stay connected, if you stay close enough to the, to the wind and the flame for it to stoke the fire, if you stay close enough to all of that, it will burn up that mess in your heart. Lesson number two, he can give us the desire to desire more of him. Then it goes on, but do you, why do you think the scriptures say God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble? Now, I'm not picking on Doogie Hauser here, but that is a great photo. This word, the proud, is interesting in the Greek. It's hyper-ephania. Hyper-ephania. You could also translate it hyper-shine. The word ephania means shine. Hypershine. We're meant to shine. We're actually told in many verses, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining, ephania, like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. We're supposed to live the ethos of Jesus before people who are not, and it will shine light in their darkness. Jesus even says, again in the Sermon on the Mount, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Remember that song? Hide it under a bushel? No. What are you going to do? I'm going to let it ephania. Right? I'm going to let it shine. Right? A lamp is placed on a stand. Why do you light a lamp? Why do we light lamps? Why do we turn on lights? Because we can't see in the dark. We are meant to shine. What we are not meant to do is hypershine. 
right? This sort of puts it in perspective. This also feels just a bit like your Instagram feed, doesn't it? Humility, literally the word humble, comes from the Latin word that means low. I heard a definition uh, uh, of humility one time, and I always use it. Humility means always telling the truth about yourself. That you always admit the truth about yourself. It keeps you from false humility like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not really good at that. When in your back, you're right, a humble brag, that's what we call it, right? When you know or you feel or they're like, man, you did a great job. And you're like, well, you know, just say thanks because you might have actually done a great job. You can go thank the Lord later. Just say thank you. Right? It's always admitting the truth about ourselves. Hypershine only reveals an edited version of yourself. Ephania also gets translated, not just shine, it gets translated appear and reveal. And I think the fact that hyper reveal, hyper appear, and hyper shine, again, that is our culture. It's editing It's deciding, I'm going to let people see this sliver of my life. In fact, there's a funny thing going around the internet right now called the Bow Wow Challenge. Because a rapper named Bow Wow took a photo and put it on Instagram and made it look like he was flying private jet. The problem was is somebody recognized him on the coach flight bad seat that he was flying on to New York that day and put that private jet that he took a photo of and the picture of him and coach beside one another and now there is a bow wow challenge where everybody posts photos of themselves looking like they're doing something amazing then they back out to the wide shot and you see it's actually not quite as amazing as you thought it was this is what i mean by editing sharing only a sliver of our life hypershine would be me standing up here and acting like i've got my whole life together And never telling you about my failures, never telling you that my wife and I were separated for a year. Never telling you about me turning my back on the Lord and walking away from my faith. That would be hypershine. That would not be humility. It would not be the ethos of Jesus and it would certainly not be the ethos of our church. So how do we avoid hypershine? Submit yourselves to God is what the verse says right after this. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. And he tells us seven ways to submit ourselves. The first one is resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right? So what does it look like to live humbly? Resist the devil. You've got to resist this supernatural being that's going to breathe on that desire that's in your heart and say, I don't have to crucify him today. You'll crucify him tomorrow. Right? Crucify him tomorrow. It's okay. This one little thing, that thing, that desire. You deserve this. Do you, you worked so hard for this. You worked so hard for this. The kids, my spouse, life's hard. It's okay. Check out. Do this thing. Look at this thing on my phone. Nobody will know. It's okay. I'm on the incognito browser. It can't be followed. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Right? Don't disconnect from the Lord no matter what's going on in your life. That's what he's saying. Prodigal son, right, what happens? The father was standing at the end of the driveway, and when he saw his son from a long way off, he ran to him. That is this idea that just the bit of turning, coming near to him, you don't have to bring him a good attitude. He already knows your attitude's bad. You don't have to bring him perfectness. He already knows you're imperfect. You just have to come near. Wash your hands, you sinners, 
There are actions that you are doing that you need to stop doing. You have dirtied your hands. We all have. We all have dirt and grime under our fingernails. We need to do the work of washing that off, of calling it what it is. It is sin. It is rebellion from God, and we need to wash it off of our hands. We also need to purify the inside, our hearts. Right? We need to do the work on the inside. You double-minded. We've seen this word before, right? Dipsosukos is what it means, double-souled. It's the guy on the ocean without a rudder on his boat, and he is getting tossed everywhere. Purify your hearts, he says. If your heart is desiring this thing and this, you need to do the work of purifying it. Grieve, mourn, and wail. He's saying this is serious. This frivolous, just living for the day, just not really caring, saying I'll take care of that tomorrow. He's saying there will be a reckoning. And pay attention to this. Maybe your attitude of frivolity towards your life, you need to stop for a moment and look at these things and take a different attitude. Maybe just laughing your way through it isn't the thing that you need to do. Maybe you need to mourn the actual condition of your soul and change your joy to gloom. He's not saying live a sad life. He's saying for this period of time and in this moment, this is the thing you need to do. Humble yourself before the Lord here. I would say this is a promise. Yes, Jay, I will take that water. Um, thank you. Um, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Right? I made that one yellow like hypershine, right? The Lord will put you on a stand to be a light, not to have a spotlight on you. When you think of hypershine, when you think of pride, you should think of somebody wanting to stand in the bright white of the spotlight. Spotlights aren't the same as floodlights. These lights in here light the whole room up. A spotlight, if we turn this off and I just stood in the spotlight, you couldn't see what was in the darkness around it. That is what hypershine does. Hypershine says, put the spotlight on me, only show part of me, don't show all the stuff in the shadows, but just show me. And hypershine just wants the spotlight on me. Hypershine isn't a light. You're not to have the spotlight on you, you're to actually be a light. And if you are a light, you are in the service of others. The Lord wants you to humble yourself and deal with these things because he needs to put you on a stand to show people how to live. Because if you walk around in the darkness, you are going to get hurt. Lesson number four, we must grieve the true condition of our heart and mind. Right? They're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. That's why we sang that song. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That is a somber song about saying, Lord, I understand what happens with my heart, and I don't like it. I'm not going to run away from you. I'm going to stay in here with you. I know you're putting trials in my life to burn these things up in me. Help me. Give me the grace to be able to stand under this. 
Then he goes into a section that a lot of people are just like, why is this last section here? Here's why I think it's here. I think it's here because not everybody was going through these things. Not everybody had these desires. Not everybody was coveting. Some people were mature in their faith, but you know what they were? They were a bunch of self-righteous gossips. That never happens in churches, does it? Heaven forbid, right? That doesn't happen. Like, we don't have any self-righteous gossips in the American church today, do we? We don't have anybody walking around picketing about certain people groups or other things about how they're worse than we are, do they? No, we don't have that. Don't slander one another. Slander spoken, libel's written, just in case you've wondered. You shouldn't libel either. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them. I love this, I love this illustration. It's actually from the New York Times, right? This is that whole thing about the tongue, right? The tongue isn't evil. It shoots flames and it scorches people, right? Your judging, your thing in your heart or your speaking out of it speaks against the law and judges it. You're actually sitting in a place you were not meant to sit, which is in judgment of the law. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it. You're disregarding the law of God. You're not keeping it. You're sitting in judgment. You have placed yourself in a seat where you don't belong. And the reason why you don't belong is because there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? If you haven't seen the movie Gran Torino, it is not a family film, but it is a wonderful film about judging a neighbor and the transition that takes place in a man's heart towards another group. Clint Eastwood, as you might guess from his face, plays the judging neighbor. Right? We are not meant to sit in judgment. When we look at other people and we cast judgment upon them, the thing that we are doing is we are saying, we are hypershining our own lives. We are saying, oh, well, I don't deal with that, and not understanding the blackness of our hearts. We are not admitting the desires that we have. We're not admitting that when life gets tough, when the pressures come on, when you are, I love the HALT acronym, when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, when you're tired. That's what we teach men. If you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, go eat something and take a nap because you are not going to make good decisions when those pressures come in your life and begin to squeeze you and you feel those desires for things that you shouldn't have. You sitting in judgment on somebody else is saying, I don't have those things in my life. We all have those things in our life. It's why we have to crucify them every day. It's why we need the grace of the Holy Spirit. And it's why we have to submit ourselves to God and engage with him. Lesson number four, we are made to love. We are not asked to judge. We're made to love. We're made to love him. We're made to love others. There's a reason why it's the mission of the church. Love him, love others. It's very simple in that regard. Worship team's going to come up. We actually have a prayer team. If you would start making your way to the front as well. If the Lord's quickening something in your heart and you want prayer, just humble yourself and go find somebody to pray for you. You know what? After this message, nobody's going to judge you. Right? We actually dim the lights down. We won't spotlight you that you're being prayed for. It's okay. We all need to be prayed for. We all need to pray for one another. If you don't come up here, grab a spouse, a friend, 
neighbor, somebody near you. Pray through these things. Ask the Holy Spirit this week to shine the light on the places in your heart where you need to be submitted or the places where we're not revealing all of ourselves. If there are things in your life that you are not revealing to somebody, you are in a dangerous, precarious situation. I don't know how else to tell you that. If there are things in your life that you have not revealed to anyone else, you are in a place that is not healthy. And it is dangerous, and you will not make good decisions in that place. Ask the light of the Holy Spirit to come into all of those places. We also have communion on the sides. Don't take communion by yourself. We break the bread. We drink the cup. We do this together. It's part, it's the symbol of us being a body together. Why don't you guys stand so we can worship and I'll pray for us. Thank you, Jesus, for winning your brother James over. Thank you, James, for writing this letter to us. We need this letter. We need it right now more than ever, Lord, because because we're human beings first, because of where we are in our culture, because of what's going on in the world. We need to be told these things. We need to be reminded of these things, to not disconnect from you, to not just polish up our life and shine a spotlight on ourselves, but instead to do the hard work of connecting with you, of connecting with others, of humbling ourselves, of admitting, of washing our hands, of purifying our hearts, of resisting the enemy. We need to do that hard work so that we can burn like a lamp so that others can see in the darkness that is around us. Make us a people who do that, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'll breathe on the little embers in our heart, and I pray that that desire for you, give us more desire for you. I want a David desire for you. I confess, Lord, when I read those verses, when I read one thing have I desired, I have to say about five things right now I desire, Lord. Let the other things in our life pale in comparison to our desire for you. Lord, stir us up. Make us a body of desire, Lord. Make us a a body of desire to love you. Thank you, Jesus, that you prayed in your high priestly prayer. Lord, the, the love that I have, the love that the Father and the Son have, you have for us, that you've invited us into that love, that the whole thing is a love paradigm. It's a love relationship. It's not a right, wrong, bad evil, good, punishment, situation. It is a relational thing. You haven't called us servants. You've called us friends. You call us sons and daughters. You invite us to come and be in the family, to have an intimate relationship and fellowship with you. And God, for the people, for all of us in the areas of our life, or maybe, Lord, there's people in this room that have never known that or hear that and think that is for everybody else. That is impossible for me. Holy Spirit, come in this room right now and do that in our hearts. Make us a people that desire you more than we desire anything else. Lord, those cravings, 
Lord, we all know them. Some of us have cravings that are vices or addictions in our lives, God. Right now, there are those things in this room, God. I pray you break them. I pray you release people from those chains that bind them up, God, to the things that they see with their eyes that they desire, God, those things that they see with their eyes that cause so much guilt and shame and heaviness and lock them and chain them in darkness, Lord, in a way that they cannot imagine possibly being free. Lord, I pray for husbands and wives who have things in their lives that they have feared to share with one another for years. God, I pray that you'll shine light in there and that there'll be freedom. It is for the sake of freedom that you set us free, Lord. You do not want us to be slaves again to fear. You do not want us to be tangled up in sin. You tell us, Lord, that there are seeds that can be planted in our hearts. that get choked out by the cares and concerns of this world, by the deceitfulness of riches, God, by things we crave and prides that we have of our own accomplishments, God, in our possessions. I pray all those things would be stripped away this morning. And that we would realize that we are naked and wretched and blind is how we come to you, God. All of us. And there is a nature inside of us that is that way that we must crucify every single day. Lord, don't let us have pride about our self-righteousness. Please don't let us have pride about our sanctification, God. About the purification that you and you alone are doing in our hearts, Lord. Let not our obedience, let not our maturity become a badge of pride, But let us cause us to go even lower so that we can find people, Lord, who are hurting and lost and broken. Come, Holy Spirit, and do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.